When you see how James 5 starts, it's a warning against the rich. And so if any of you are struggling with how much money you have, you know I'm here for you. Okay? <laughs> oh, you know, as a pastor, I feel compelled to help with that. Okay? <laughs> All right. All right, let's pray and begin our, our final chapter of James. Uh, our Father, our Father God, we, uh, we love you. We love your Son, Lord, and we're thankful for the Holy Spirit. We're thankful that you gave us this word. We're thankful that, Lord, we're at a point where we've seen so many results come from your word, and we know, Lord, that we still need to grow in our faith. We still need to learn. We still need to sit at your feet. So we pray tonight would be just a tremendous night with you, Lord. And as always, we thank you for the completion of a book, Lord, or thank you for those who listen to every syllable, Lord, that have come from this book. And more than that, Lord, uh, this is the book that tells us not to be hearers only, but also doers of this word. And we know that you can, Lord, uh, work in us the will to do your will. And we pray for that as well tonight. So in all things, Lord, receive honor and glory and majesty from we, your people. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So as James concludes the book, he's kind of going to hit on all these points of why he really seems to have written this book, which he covers so many themes, and he covers them so briefly, yet with such an impact, um, that I would sum it up with, uh, you're to walk with the Lord in authentic and real faith that is not just talk only, but there's a walk that goes with it. I think that's the heart of James that we're covering here. And as we begin uh, the fifth and final chapter, I want to remind you where we left off, because as I say often, none of these biblical authors wrote in chapters. They just wrote fluently through the whole letter, and so they don't know about chapter division, so we want to make sure we're catching the flow of the thought from the previous chapter as we enter into the new chapter. And we left off with this whole idea about uh, we don't know about tomorrow. We shouldn't boast about tomorrow. In all of our future plans, we should finish with if the Lord wills. I showed you examples of that in Paul. I think I gave you three verses where he talks about future plans, and then he says, if the Lord allows, if the Lord wills. And, and sins of omission, he brings up. Uh, we're very familiar with sins of commission, that we commit sins. But he also says that because you're Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand for you to walk in. As Philippians, he'll tell us in Philippians that um, God works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Therefore, if we know the good that we ought to do and we don't do it, we are charged with sin there. Uh, you don't have to look very far to see how desperate the world is for the good deeds of the church to be done. And so you've been a part of that calling to do these good deeds and to omit them as sin. So with that, uh, he finishes his last couple paragraphs by saying, come now, you rich. So he's going to, now he's talking about those who are oppressing workers, okay? So there's never anywhere in the Bible that forbids or talks down upon being wealthy but it does talk about how you got wealthy and it talks about what you do with your wealth. So the, the, the existence of wealth is often a blessing. Uh, you're in good company if you're wealthy. You're in the company of Abraham and Job and, and folks like that. But um, if your love of money is what's driving you, you're in peril. And if, it's, uh, if others aren't the beneficiaries of your wealth, you're in trouble too. So, again, I can help you there. But the source of our wealth is made clear to us in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. So in 1 Chronicles 29, the reason James will say in the beginning of this chapter, come now you rich, he says, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. So he has a warning about the judgment that comes upon the rich who use their wealth in oppressive manners or to not benefit anybody else. So in 1 Chronicles 29, we see that picture starting in verse 10. says, then David, there's another one you're in good company with uh, who is wealthy. 
says, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. So there goes all boasting, right? All, both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. So even our offerings that we give for charity, he's saying all we're doing is giving back to God. We're certainly not giving him anything that wasn't his already. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. So those verses are giving us the source of our wealth, that all things are from him. And as Job would say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So our portion in wealth, you know, you hear people say this, uh, I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made man. And we know what they mean by that. They've worked hard. They've gathered all their wealth and so forth. And they made themselves who they are. That is in direct opposition to what God is saying. He's saying, God is the source of your wealth. And David, who's a king with all kinds of riches, says, who am I that I get to give back to you? He's overwhelmed with the honor that he gets to distribute this wealth in a way that uh, gives back to God. And um, in Luke 12, we see the expectation of our wealth given in parable form by Jesus where he says this. It's um, Luke 12, starting in verse 13. It says, Then one of the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store up all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So I think the key to this is God saying, listen to your plans. Remember James finished with, don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know if you'll even have tomorrow. So here now is a parable Jesus is telling about somebody who's extremely successful with his wealth, earns a lot of money, and considers, I need bigger areas to store up all this wealth so that I can eat, I can drink, I can be merry, I can take my ease. So in other words, he has no thought of anybody else benefiting uh, from his good fortune whatsoever. So therefore, God says, you're a fool because I give life and I take life. And when I decide to take your life, then every plan you had for your wealth now fails. You're not going to be able to eat with it. You're not going to be able to drink with it. You're not going to be able to be merry with it. And you're not going to be able to take your ease because your life is commanded of you tonight. And now none of your plans for your wealth are fulfilled. And now you face the one who tried to teach you that all that wealth came from God, you were a terrible steward of it, and now you've got to make an account for it. 
So, um, one of the quotes I put in your notes here says about this verse, better weep here, it's talking to the rich, it's better for you to weep here where there are wiping handkerchiefs in the hand of Christ than to have your eyes whipped out in hell. Better howl with men than yell with devils. So James commands you to weep and howl if you've oppressed with your wealth, if you've taken advantage of people with your wealth, if you've not been generous with your wealth. He says, weep and howl. And Professor Trapp here that I quoted, he says, this is good advice for you because it's better for you to weep here on earth where the wiping handkerchiefs in the hand of Christ. So you could see in Revelation where it talks about Jesus wipes every tear from our eye. In other words, that repentance of your weeping over your sinful behavior with your wealth, uh, Jesus will dry those tears, he'll forgive you, and it's better for you to get this weeping done here where the wiping hand handkerchiefs of Christ are in the hand of Christ than to have your eyes whipped out in hell. It's better to howl with men than yell with devils. That always reminds me of the verse in Billy Joel's song, uh, Only the Good Die Young, where he says, I would rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. It's like, no, you wouldn't. You have no idea how foolish that is. And it's ironic how that song made him quite a bit of wealth, and I don't know what he does with his wealth, but um, bad theology, I would say. So if you're reading commentaries by Billy Joel, I would, I would do otherwise. All right. <clears throat> Okay, so he says, come you now, come you, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. In other words, these are the things that wealth acquires and what they can't survive, what wealth cannot survive is the judgment of God. The, the riches will be corrupted, the garments will be moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and listen to this, and will eat your flesh like fire. I don't know how to interpret that. I just know it's bad. It's really, really bad, okay? You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Then it says, verse four, indeed, the wages, here's the oppression. So here's the, here's the, the rich and their wealth and how they're treating the ones who actually did the labor for their wealth. It says, indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. So as the, as the laborers are crying out for their oppression, God hears their crying out, and, and God hears that crying out. And it says, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now, <laughs> that looks like a lot like the word Sabbath, doesn't it? This is not the Lord of the Sabbath. Sabaoth here is the same word that's translated Lord of hosts elsewhere. And if you know Lord of hosts, that's the Lord of the heavenly armies. So James actually is telling oppressors who use their wealth and gain their wealth through oppression, he says, understand this, those who complain about you, those complaints are reaching the ears of the Lord of the heavenly armies. Why do you think he's identifying God that way in this context? You're in big trouble, okay? The oppressors are in big, big trouble. So he, he doesn't say the God of all mercies heard it. He says the God of the heavenly armies heard it. So that's the role that God will fulfill in meeting those who have oppressed the laborers unfairly. So he says, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. So when you use your wealth only for yourself, certainly you use it for yourself. You eat, you pay rent, or buy, buy what you gotta buy, and those things can be really, really nice. But when that's all that it's about, it says you lived in pleasure and luxury, he says you're fattening your hearts as in a day of slaughter. So just like when it's time to slaughter the cows and slaughter the pigs and slaughter the chickens, you fatten them up, okay? And they're getting fat, they think, wow, how generous of the owner, I'm getting more food, more food, more food, but they don't know it's the day of their slaughter, that they do that to slaughter them, okay? So it says, when you hoard your wealth for yourself and yourself only, you're fattening yourself for the day of your slaughter. It says, you have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he being God does not, and he does not resist you. 
No, I'm sorry, that's the oppressor. The, the one being oppressed does not resist you. Now, that word murdered there, we don't know if we should take that literally or metaphorically. I imagine it's much more contextually applicable if you take it metaphorically. Because Jesus will talk about the poor condition of a person's heart that, that's in anger and yells, fool, raka, at somebody. He says, you're guilty of their murder when you've reached that level of anger. Now, okay, so in Luke 16, we get another parable that matches this perfectly. You would swear James just read the parable in Luke 12 at the beginning of that paragraph and the parable of Luke 16 for the second part of that paragraph. In Luke 16, starting at verse 19, Jesus tells a parable that has the exact description of the rich man that James is condemning. He says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Now, where else do we hear about crumbs that fall from a table? Okay, so there's a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman, not a Jew. She's a Gentile, she's despised by Jews, and she asked for her daughter to be healed. And Jesus says something seems so out of character for him. He says, I have only come to the lost sheep of Israel. So it sounds like a big rejection of this woman, but it's not at all. He's actually teaching and training his Jewish followers because they would expect him to say, you've only come to the lost sheep of Israel. But he's provoking her. He knows her faith. So he provokes her and knows she'll say something like what she says. And she ends up saying, because they, they would call the Gentiles dogs in those days. You're a Gentile dog. And so when he says, I've only come to lost sheep of Israel to a Gentile, she says, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So here's her faith. I only need a crumb level of what you give everybody else. If you give everybody else bread, I know if you give me a crumb of that bread, my daughter will live. Now that's faith, isn't it? That's tremendous faith. And Jesus uses that occasion to celebrate how this Gentile has great faith and the Jews are so filled with questioning and doubts. So my favorite painting of the Last Supper, now you're certainly familiar with da Vinci's rendering of the Last Supper painting. It's what everybody has. Um, you have to know there's tons of meaning behind that. We should go over the Last Supper painting one night. It's really remarkable. But it's meant to give you some devotional thoughts. It's not meant to be an accurate rendering because I think they would have laughed at each other that they all plopped down on the same side of the table, right? Um, <clears throat> but I don't even know the artist's name. I should probably figure it out. But I have this in my classroom, this rendering of the Last Supper painting, where this artist at the Last Supper, if you look under the table at the feet of the apostles, there's a dog eating their crumbs. So what is that artist saying? This supper, the Gentiles are welcome to as well. You can have the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And I just think it's a beautiful picture um, of that. Now, so in this parable, um, it says Lazarus was just desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. The idea there is, is that that's all it would take to bring him life. Okay. Moreover, the dogs, here they are, came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's a great epitaph, isn't it? He died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And then you hear this, the rich man also died and was buried. Not quite the epitaph, is it? Okay. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water. You see how Lazarus is still his servant? Even though Lazarus made it to Abraham's bosom and he's in torment, he still treats him like a servant. 
He says, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That would be Lazarus, right? Lazarus going to them from the dead, they'll repent. But what's the greater meaning? Listen to what happens. But he said to him, even if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, says the Bible, correct? The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Here's a man who loves money and he has opportunity at his very doorstep to benefit somebody greatly with his money, and he doesn't. So now he's tormented in Hades. He has the mind to say, can somebody warn my brothers about this awful place? And the answer that's given is, they have Moses and the prophets. Okay, they have the word of God. If they don't listen to the word of God, then they won't believe even if somebody raises from the dead. Okay, so people maybe said to you, say to me all the time, if God would just show me, I'll believe. They just show me, I'll believe. Okay, and this is saying, listen, you could actually see him risen from the dead. And if you're not getting faith from the word of God, you won't believe even if he rises from the dead. Okay, it's not, we say seeing is believing. The Bible says believing is seeing. You won't see clearly until you start believing. You start with faith and then things start to make sense right? Um, believing is seeing, not seeing is believing. So here you get almost an exact description of the rich man of James 5 who is selfish with his wealth and in his lack of generosity, nobody benefits from his wealth. There's no charity from his wealth. And um, uh, James warns of the judgment day that's coming for such a person. So he calls them to repent. Repent here on earth and you're weeping so that you don't weep on your judgment day. Okay. All right, verse seven. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. Now, this is pointing us back to verses two and three. So in two and three, it says, your riches are corrupt. No, I'm sorry, chapter one, verses two and three. In chapter one of James, the second and third verse say, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, okay? So now, it's saying, in your trials, understand this, God will grow you in patience. And then you'll see the fruit of patience in chapter one. So now he's saying, therefore, be patient, brethren. So he's, he's saying, listen, if you're part of this oppressed group, be patient until the coming of the Lord. When is everything gonna be made right? When are all the scales of injustice gonna be balanced perfectly? The coming of the Lord, right? The coming of the Lord, okay? That requires patience, okay? So with all of the unrest that you see in our cities, what they're lacking is faith and then the patience that the Lord has, perfect justice for everybody who has wronged anybody. So when you hear about all these laws, all these ideas, all these movements, those are all thoughts of mankind apart from God to solve issues that only the gospel will solve. Only a heart that's received the gospel is gonna be in a position 
to not struggle with racism, not struggle with greed, not struggle with identity issues, all of those things. The gospel and the reason why our country struggles is because the gospel has become something that you just can't say out loud. And so look at the people suffer. Look at, the, look at this nation suffer. Look at the cities burn. Look at the riots happen. Look at the looting, bold looting and broad daylight in front of cameras, and they don't care. They just had today uh, a crime spree of multiple places at gunpoint within a couple hours, and they finally crashed their van. And when they got caught, one of them shouted out, I will be out on bail in no time. That's this in-your-face crime. I know you won't deal with this seriously. This is what a nation looks like when God is not primary. The gospel is the solution. I've, in my school of CCA, I have kids that are supposed to be being brought up in covenant homes. Rebuke me on that. They rebuke me when I say, it's not gun laws we need, it's the gospel we need. And, and I get criticized for that. And, and I'm st sticking to my guns, so to speak, okay? All right, you're laughing at me, I can tell. Um, it's the gospel. It's the gospel, it's the gospel. Um, so when we depart from God, God lets us know what it's like. Listen, it's too bad God doesn't give us like real life stories of having a people group that he's working with and trying to bless and when they turn away from him, they find that suddenly their crops don't grow, that enemies come in and take them over. It's too bad we don't have stories like that. That would help us so much. If we could see historically that that's actually happened, we would probably not do this, right? Okay, that's sarcastic, right? Okay, <clears throat> we have all that. It's, it's like Jesus would say, we have Moses and the prophets. And Jesus will say, Moses and the prophets, all they did is write about me. We have everything we need right here in front of us, and we're looking elsewhere all the time, okay? Imagine a Congress that opened up their Bibles and said, let's find the answers to our problems. What kind of nation would that be, okay? All right. So it's a call to patience. Now, we don't like calls to be patient. It doesn't sound warrior-like. It doesn't sound like the fighting spirit we want to operate in. But patience is, is this waiting upon the Lord is not an inactive waiting. If you look at this word in Isaiah 40, 31, it says, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint, Right? That waiting in there is the waiting of busy activity in the meantime. In other words, you're busy about the Lord's work while you're waiting for solutions and waiting for answers. You are never called to an idle waiting. So when it's talking about being patient, this isn't sit on your chair and wait around. This is be busy about the Lord's business while you're waiting. In this case, in James 5, 7, it's do that until the coming of the Lord. And so now he's going to compare it to a farmer. And he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Now, how does a farmer wait? First of all, this early and latter rain. The early rain was actually in the fall, and that rain prepared the ground and softened the ground for the spring um, sowing, sowing of the seeds in the spring. The latter rains were in the spring that watered those seeds to grow their crops. So he says you have to wait for those early and latter rains. But what does a farmer do while he's waiting? Okay, he's sowing, right? He's tending, he's pruning, he's always working. Okay, he's always working in that time where he's waiting. Okay, the, before the crops come in, the farmer is very busy about being a farmer when he has he does all that he can do as he waits for God to do all that the farmer can't do, okay? But it's never being idle, okay? He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts for the coming Lord is at hand. Um, 
I was just teaching this this morning, and it just rang a bell with me now, so if this doesn't work, forgive me. But anyways, in Psalm 1, in Psalm 1, when it talks about, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So walking is obviously fluid motion, that you're not to be going from this ungodly thing to that ungodly thing, listening, listening, podcast, whatever, to this secular idea, and then this secular idea. You're not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of a sinner. So standing is not the motion. Stand is you've made a decision. This is where I stand now. I stand on this topic. Now, if you're walking in the counsel of the ungodly, where you stand is going to be ungodly. And then it says, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So the sitting now is now you're established there. Abraham's nephew Lot gives us this perfect picture because when Abraham says, listen, we're too large for us to travel together. You pick which direction you want to go and I'll go in the other direction. Lot chooses to go towards Sodom. So you first see him. It's beautiful land, it says. It's going to be great for his herds and, his, and his, his animals and his crops. And he walks towards there. He's walking towards there. And then the next time we see him, he's standing right outside the city. He's not in it, but he's right at, on the border of it. And the next time we see him, he's sitting at the city gate where leaders gather to make decisions about the city. So now he's established himself as a Sodom and Gomorrah resident. And he's got to be rescued out of there before he fries, right? He's got to be rescued only because of what? You know, the first time we ever hear of intercessory prayer is Abraham pleading with God, what if you find 50? What if you find 40? What if you find 30? And why does he stop at 10? He has 10 relatives in that city, a lot in his family, right? He's looking out for his family, and God, God agrees to every condition that, that uh, Abraham puts forth there. All right. So I, I, I shared this quote with you on this. Be patient, a worker, for impatience sours the temper chills the blood, sickens the heart, prostrates the vigor of one's spirit, and spoils the enterprise of life before it is ripe for history. Wait thou, clothed with patience, like a champion clad in steel. Wait with a sweet grace, as one who guards the faith and sets an example of humility. Wait in a right spirit, anxious, prayerful. This isn't the anxiety anxious, this is the, I can't wait, anxious, prayerful, earnest, submissive to the ways of God, not doubtful of his will. Disciple of Jesus, learn to labor and to wait. That's the word in Isaiah 40, 31, is as you wait, you labor. As you wait, you labor. You're always busy about the Lord's work as you wait on the Lord. Okay? So the farmer waits with a reasonable hope and expectation of reward. He knows the crop is coming. He waits a long time. He waits working all the while. He waits depending on things that are out of his power with his eye on the heavens. He waits despite changing circumstances and many uncertainties. He waits encouraged by the value that the harvest will bring. He waits encouraged by the work and harvest of others that he's witnessed. He waits because he really has no other option. He waits because it does him no good to quit. He waits, aware, how, aware of how the seasons work. So you've got to understand we're in seasons, and, 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 and um, every, every, there's a season for everything under heaven, correct? Okay, so, so we wait. He waits because as time goes on, it becomes more important to do that. As time goes on, patience becomes more and more important, not less and less important. Verse 9. So in your waiting, he says this, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Now listen, he's talking to believers here. Whenever you see the word brethren, this is fellow believers. And he's saying, don't grumble against other believers, brethren, lest you be condemned. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Okay, so the word brethren here is key. To grumble against a fellow Christian is to judge the law that set him or her free, 
to be an heir. You say the law is wrong. The law, law that set you free is wrong because in your freedom, I'm criticizing you. I'm condemning you. So if you look at last week's lesson, verse 11, James said it there. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. And if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who's able to save and destroy. So who are you to judge another? So likewise here, he says, don't grumble against one another. Grumbling is a form of judgment, isn't it? Grumbling saying, I can't believe this person's so wrong in what they say or do or think. Okay? So he calls us not to grumble against one another. <laughs> now listen, if you're face to face with somebody and whatever you're grumbling about, you're actually talking to with them, that's not grumbling against them. That's productive conversation, right? Grumbling is when you have your hand up like this so the person you're talking about can't hear you, right? He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. That judge that's standing at the door is the same person that he mentions in verse 12 of chapter 4. There is one lawgiver. There's one lawgiver. There's one judge. And both calling God lawgiver and judge is speaking against a believer who's speaking against a believer. Christians have a judgment that we're going to go through. It's not the Revelation chapter 20, great white throne judgment where everybody's cast into the lake of fire that's in that one. Okay, you can hear the angels already. <laughs> this is the Christian's judgment. We read about it twice. For 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we read about it. And there it says, starting verse 9, therefore we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So all this talk about works, you see that those works are weighed at judgment day. 1 Corinthians 3 is a little bit more descriptive of that judgment of the believer, where it says, First Corinthians three, what? Um, three ten sounds right. Where is ten? It's after nine, right? Let's see. There it is. All right, we'll start nine since the beginning of the paragraph. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me. As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. So he's laid the foundation. You can't build a house without laying a foundation, right? So he's laid the foundation and others are building on that foundation. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So watch how you build on this foundation. Now he's going to tell you what the foundation is that he laid for you. And he says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. So is he your foundation? Is everything about you built upon him, your confession of him, your belief in him, your trust in him? Everything in your life needs to be built on that. He's the rock, which he says, if you build on that rock, the storms will come. So don't be confused when storms come because building on the rock is not a rock that's free from storms. The storms will indeed come. The question is, do you, do you stand or do you fall in your storms? If you build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, it's promised that you will stand through those storms. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the capital D day, the judgment day, will declare it because it'll be revealed by fire. And that fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now, Paul is saying, if, you, if your foundation is Christ, you're going to heaven. Now, when you go to heaven, you're going to face a judgment. But it's not a judgment of sin, it's a judgment of your works. That Jesus said there's various rewards for these works. So he says, if you've built on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that's precious work. 
Okay, that's valuable work that you're performing. He says, then fire will test it. Now, what does fire do to gold and silver and precious stones? It purifies it. It gets rid of everything that's impure in it so that the value of what goes into that fire, it comes out more valuable, more precious, more pure with no impurities in it. But what if you built with wood, hay, or straw? What is fire going to do to that? Consume it completely. It's gone. There's no reward whatsoever. He says, but you're saved, but as yet through fire. Okay? But you're saved. Okay? Now, this is where the Catholic Church teaches purgatory. They think this is a purgatory teaching. Okay? But um, there's a contrast between those who built with gold and those who built with straw. And one's rewarded and one's barely saved. It doesn't, a purgatory teaching is that everybody gets torment for centuries and centuries. Do you see that anywhere in this text? Neither do I. No. Okay. All right. Verse 10, 510. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. He says, look at the prophets. They, be, because of their life of speaking about the Lord, look at their suffering and patience. And you're going, do I have to go through the whole Old Testament to do that? No, you have a summary of exactly what James is talking about, just a few pages to the left in Hebrews 11, starting at verse 4, or verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By the way, when that was written in the first century, nobody had any idea that science would prove that everything had, came out of nothing, which is scientifically impossible, but we know that it happened Therefore, there has to be a miracle worker. And you're saying, you already taught us that in apologetics, right? No? Okay, all right. Now, uh, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. Verse seven, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things yet not seen, moved with godly fear. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go into the place that he would receive it as an inheritance. 11, by faith, Sarah also received strength to conceive seed. Um, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, saying, listen, they all lived this life of faith, and everything that was promised, the promises of Abraham to David, none of them got fulfilled in their lifetime. Yet, they held on to the faith. All of those things have been fulfilled by our lifetime. So our faith is on past events that we believe the historicity of it. Their faith was on things that had never happened, but because God said so, they said we believe it. So I think they had it harder than us, okay? 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who, who had received the promises offered up by his only begotten son. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons. 22, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 27, by faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. 29, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. Verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. That was all done how? By faith. Now, what is James telling us here in, in, in verse 10? He says this, take the prophets, saying, look at all that, these prophets did, who spoke in the name of the Lord. They shut the mouths of lions. They were burned to death. Was, I didn't even get to that part of Hebrews 11. It says, um, 
It says, others were tortured, not escaping deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had the trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's how Isaiah died. Sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. I love that epitaph. I love that. The world was not worthy of these prophets. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And for that, they obtained a good testimony. So here, James says, consider the prophets. You want to talk about you're going through a trial and I'm asking you to be patient? You have a witness, a great cloud of witnesses out there that will tell you what they went through and how they were patient, waiting for the Lord, and how they were able to endure the most tremendous of sufferings, the most tremendous. If God said to you, make a list of what prophets should suffer, you would probably not be that cruel, would you? You wouldn't come up with that list that they actually went through. So consider the prophets. Um, He says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. He who endures to the end shall be saved, says the Bible, right? It's endurance. Endurance and perseverance are massive Christian words, and yet we pray for all this stuff to be taken away. When God say, I'm trying to work patience, I'm trying to work endurance, I'm trying to work perseverance in you, okay? I think I brought it up last week. I love the prayer of the worship leader here when he, he was talking about having the faith to move mountains, yet sometimes, Lord, instead of moving the mountain, you ask us to climb it. You know, maybe that mountain's there to be climbed, not, not to be moved out of your way. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, the only thing I want to say about this with Job is this. People that have a hard time believing the stories of the Bible always mention Noah and the flood. They always mention Job, and they always mention Jonah getting swallowed by a fish. And that's fascinating to me because they're some of the best attested to historical figures. Because here James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, says, look at the perseverance of Job. You think he believed in the story of Job? Okay. Jesus Christ, when he's trying to say that he's coming back one day, that's a major event that Jesus needs you to believe in, correct? He's coming back. He puts all of his eggs in one basket to get you to believe. He says, it'll be like the days of Noah. They're going about their business as normal, and suddenly the flood came and took them away. He puts all of the credibility of a second coming on one event, and that was the worldwide flood of Noah. Did Jesus of Nazareth believe in that flood story? And then his third day resurrection, Paul will say the most important event in human history, all right? That's the most important thing that ever happened on planet Earth was the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And when Jesus is asked about that, he said, I'm only going to give you one sign, the sign of Jonah. Three days and nights in the belly of a fish, that's how I'll be in the belly of the earth. And as Jonah got out, I'll get out. Think he believed in Jonah? He uses these most unbelievable stories to give the most important truths of himself. Okay? And here's the story of Job. Verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now, we need some clarity on this because the Jews of James's day distinguished between binding oaths and unbinding oaths. A binding oath is when you invoke the name of God in your oath. Now you're bound by that oath. But to not invoke the name of God in an oath is the equivalent of when we promise something with our fingers crossed behind our back, right? We have ill intention about the oath that we're making. This is what James is forbidding. Here's that type of oath, okay? So non-binding oaths were known to be made by those intending to break them, kind of like crossing your fingers behind your back. James is here addressing non-binding oaths, not the binding oaths invoking the name of God. God himself gives binding oaths. So clearly it's okay to give binding oaths invoking the name of God because God does it. Luke chapter 1, verse 73 Full of the Holy Spirit, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, says this. 
God will, in verse 72 says, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. So God swore an oath to Abraham. We see that in Genesis 15. It's one of the great oaths that we get. Um, Hebrews 3, we read this. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There he gives an oath of, of um, judgment. Okay, he's, he's swearing an oath. I swore in my wrath. Hebrews 6.13. I like this one a lot. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. I love that predicament of God's. Okay? It's like we say, I swear to God. God says, I swear by me. All right? Okay? Because there's nothing greater he could swear by. So he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. Okay, so God swears oaths, binding oaths in his name. The problem with us swearing unbinding oaths is that it represents a, an integrity problem that we have. Okay? James is looking for you to have the character that people say, I know you'll do it because you told me you would. You don't have to promise. You don't have to say, you, you know, trust me, I promise, I swear I'll do it. He says, don't do that because people without integrity have to do that. He says, just say it and then do it. And you'll see that your yes is yes and your no is no. It's the integrity you're called to, to, be, to keep your oaths and your promises even when it hurts you to do so. Your word is your bond. 5.13 is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. So here's the whole gamut of life. Are you suffering or are you singing, right? And the answer is this. Let all of that conversation, whether it's in word or song, go to God. Okay, God is your first stop when you're suffering and when you're cheerful in all places in between. Verse 14, is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over them, him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. So some here believe the oil was for medicinal purpose, medicinal purposes because the olive oil in there had medicinal qualities. Some believe it's a representation of the Holy Spirit. Some believe both to be true. And I think that's where I'm at with it. Now, in 1 Samuel 16, 13, you can see the, you can see the oil representing the Holy Spirit because it says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So there he gets anointed with oil. It's the outward, visible representation of the invisible reality that David's just been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And the oil is that symbol. So he says, if any of you are sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Now, many, many, many times, the elders of the church are called to bedsides, to homes, to wherever, to anoint the sick with oil. Now, first of all, the one thing that I see here is this. It says, call for the elders of the church. So this seems to be a sickness where the sick person doesn't have the ability to get out of bed. Okay, you got to call for them. They got to come to you type of thing. Secondly, it's the elders that are called for. Now, why call for the elders in this situation? Well, he's going to say in verse 16 that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Okay, so the idea is if a church has anointed somebody as an elder, he's got to meet the specifications given in 1 Timothy and 2 Peter, right? You got to meet certain specs that will, um, if you can meet them, it would certainly seem that you are indeed a righteous man. The sick are going to want a prayer that avails much, correct? So it says you want a prayer that avails much, go to the fervent prayers of a righteous man. Now, the, the idea of a fervent prayer, and this is challenging because 
you know, some of you might be on this prayer chain at the church where you get all of these prayer requests for all of these situations that come in, and there's a massive temptation to just go, dear Lord, what they said there, just let it happen. That'd be great. And it's like, that wasn't fervent at all. You're just tired. You're tired of all the requests that comes in. It's like, I don't even know these people. Like, forget the names when I'm praying. I got to look back at the sheet and see what the name is and what's the condition and, and all these things. And it's, they come every day and they come multiple and they, it's all the time. And you get stopped in hallways. Can you pray for this and that and the other thing? And the fervency is very hard to keep up. Okay. But this says fervency is a requirement of these prayers. It's fervent prayers. In other words, you're sharing in the compassion and empathy of these people. Okay. And that's not easy. But if you can feel the heart of the Lord, then you will feel empathy towards these people. The Lord never wearies of hurting for his people. He doesn't weary of that, okay? So it really is a spiritual discipline to pray fervently uh, for them. It's the fervent prayers. Um, now, this is the verse where Catholics get extreme unction, that doctrine of the sacrament. We don't see anything in this teaching that we're given a sacrament here, number one. But I will say this, the wording of these verses, you know, what they say, what their last rites that they give, this seems to be how you would describe that. It says, if he had committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And it says, the, um, the prayer of, the faith, of faith will save the sick. So it's interesting to me, it's not the word heal the sick, it's save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, we almost always get that word raise somebody up in the form of the term of resurrection, okay? So just in being transparent and fair, I would say it's hard to argue against their interpretation of these verses. Now, um, So the question becomes, what does it mean to save the sick? The question becomes, what does it mean to raise him up? And what does it mean that if you're play, praying for somebody's sickness to be healed, that the forgiveness of sins is mentioned there? Those are the reasons, okay? Just for you to weigh in your own reading and your own prayer life, okay? So I certainly, you certainly see the lame and the sick and so forth healed by Jesus. So it doesn't have to be sickness unto death to pray for healing. But where, um, where I have large disagreements with Catholic doctrine, this, this is one where I kind of see why they say what they say. Just being honest for a change, right? Okay. All right. Now, it says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It says, confess your trespasses to one another. This one another obviously is a back and forth type of interaction of confession, which is never seen in a confession booth, correct? Confession booths are not back and forth confessions to one another. It's very much one way. It's not praying for one another. It's prayer that goes one way, Right? So I would not get the confessional booth teaching out of, out of, the, out of this. This is praying for one another. Why? Because you're sharing in a priesthood now, aren't you? You're sharing in a priesthood. So pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. Private sin should have private confession to one another. That's not public knowledge. Public sin, where many people witness that sin, should have public confession. If your sin was witnessed by a crowd, that crowd should hear your confession. Public sin should have public confession. Private sin should have private confession. But we should be confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another that we would be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then to give you confidence in your prayers, what is James going to say? After talking about Prayers of a righteous man avail much. He says, but understand this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. 
He says, don't think that Elijah was somebody that you could never be, and that's why he got the results in prayer that you can never get. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And God responded to a man with a nature like ours remarkably in prayer. 19 and 20. Nineteen to twenty, brethren, if any of you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now you know Paul didn't write this because there's no greetings and there's no doxology and it's just James is like it's like Forrest Gump. It's like that's all I got to say about that, right? <laughs> He's just done, right? <laughs> He's just done. This letter ends abruptly, but it does not end ineffectively. Uh, he talks about the wandering brother from the truth. I think that's his concern throughout the letter because James is writing to a crowd that's under severe persecution, and he's worried that they're going to leave the faith. And so now as he encourages you not to leave the faith, he says, listen, also, if you bring back somebody that wanders from the truth and you turn them back, Please know that you saved a sinner from the error of his way and you saved his soul from death and you covered over a multitude of sins. Now, I gave you some verses to show it is no minor thing to turn away from truth. And I thought I'd end our time together with, with some real scary verses. Turning away from truth sounds like this, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, they're in the presence of truth. They become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the son of God and put him to open shame. Now he gives some explanation of that in the verses that follows. It says, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. So this whole idea of you are part of the Christian fellowship, you were introduced to truth, you had received truth and you walked away from the truth. It says you're crucifying to yourself again the Son of God and you're putting Jesus to open shame. And then it says, because it's like this, when the rain falls upon the earth, it both produces herbs that are very useful for those who are cultivating it, but that same rain on that same earth produces thorns and briars and those thorns and briars are to be burned, okay? So the word of God is the rain. Some take it and, they, and they're cultivated and they're very useful. Some take that word of God, they turn away from that word of God, and there's nothing left for them but to be burned, it says. And he says something similar in chapter 10, starting verse 26. He says, for our, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who's rejected Moses of the law, Old Testament people, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified as a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words, this is what I tell my students. Christianity is not a lifestyle choice. Christianity is not optional for you. It is, it's, you either walk in it with full trust and confidence in the Lord or, or uh, you, you suffer forever. You're eternally for it. Um, now, that, now that's quite a statement to make, but I don't know how anybody could overcome the truth of it. I don't know how you can overcome the truth of it. And I just think we need to hear the truth of it. So I'm grateful that I know the truth of it. I, I like the Charles Spurgeons of the world that'll say, uh, you've not preached the gospel, no matter how many decades you've preached, you've not preached the gospel unless you've told them that you're, you're a sinner on a path to hell 
and you've been, if through your faith you could be rescued from that. You know, if it's all good news, good news, good news, then why is it good news if you don't know the bad news of not knowing the good news? The good news is great news when contrasted with the bad news, correct? But half of the gospel has to do with us as sinners. The other half is Jesus as Savior. You need the whole thing. So you see, James is faithful to tell you hard truths, right? Or Hebrews faithful to tell you hard truths. Jesus Christ was faithful to tell you hard truths, saying, even those that call me Lord and tell me your list of good works that you performed, I'll say, depart from me, your work of evil, I never knew you. None of the Bible people back down from saying, we're not talking about options that you have. This is mandatory, okay? Your surrendering to Jesus Christ is mandatory. There is no comfortable way out of that situation. And um, so, so um, uh, the grumbling becomes ridiculous amongst ourselves. That becomes a huge waste of time and a setback when there's so many people that we need to be reaching. And um, uh, we got to focus in on uh, the truth because wandering from the truth is a very serious deal. So that's why, you know, you guys showing up makes all of this worth it because you have to love the Word of God to, to show up for these things, to pay the enormous price that we charge. And, um, and all of that. So um, I so respect that. Uh, I do a Wednesday Bible study during lunch where all I do is sit in my classroom that's empty during lunch on Wednesdays and I open up the Bible and I teach through it and I end up with 40 or 50 kids sitting on the floors and all the desks everywhere on the room to hear it. It's all voluntary and they show up and that means the world to me because uh, we have enough examples of why we shouldn't have a lot of hope in the future but then you get this remnant that God has chosen to, to fight for him and to be fed by him and to rise up. And, um, and then you can believe again um, in, in the goodness that God is doing. Amen. And that's how I see you folks. Okay. Um, so uh, come back in April uh, if you want more. Uh, be at church every Sunday. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Right. Hear the word of God every Sunday. Hear it when you can. But more than anything, read it seven days a week. This stuff's not optional, right? So uh, let's get it right so that we can be there for others to help them to get it right. And then wait for that day of the Lord when all of us, you, don't you have a built-in longing to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant? It's just your heart was made to hear those words, wasn't it? So um, let's be uh, waiting in our, in our busyness about the Lord's business and uh, if the Lord tarries till April 12th, I'll see you guys then. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, celebrating you, Lord, and um, your work and your word to us, your honesty to us, Lord, the purity of your word. And Lord, I pray that whatever wasn't faithful during these five uh, sessions, that you would uh, just miraculously have it disappear uh, from the record and from our hearts. And Lord, whatever was true, you would multiply 30, 60, 100 times over uh, for the benefit of your kingdom here on earth, Lord, the benefit of your people, uh, that we would uh, just uh, learn to love and adore you more. And we pray all this through Jesus. Amen.